I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Carol Mason is the president of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The last time she was here, it was 2018, and we were discussing the criminal justice system and how it criminalizes the poor. Today, we're talking police reform in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent trial and conviction of Derek Chauvin. Mason tells me that she has rethought some of the things we discussed three years ago. She also reveals her past work with Minneapolis and the man who would go on to become its police chief, Madaria Arredondo. But for Mason, if we are ever to heal this nation's racial wounds, there is one issue that must be dealt with. The fear of black people. Here is talk about it all right now. Carol Mason, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So when we spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2018, I can't believe how fast time has flown. We were talking about criminal justice reform and basically the criminalizing of poverty uh, and how, you know, Basically, what we do in the United States is people go to jail because they're poor. And among the many things you said, you said we should be creating mental health courts, drug courts, diverting people from prison and jail. Um, You said that the problem we have now is we think prison is the only way to hold people accountable when they break the law. And then here's the key thing that you said. It's much more, more of a better investment to invest in people and educating them on the front end than having to incarcerate them. And those quotes jumped out at me because the conversation we're having today is more along the lines of not incarceration of people, but policing and how police have gotten themselves into all of these different things, whether responding to people in mental distress, responding to people who are having um, episodes related to, to drug addiction, And now people are wondering, wait, do we really need to call the cops for that? Do you think that um, the conversation that the the country is having now as a result of the killing of George Floyd and the, the trial and conviction of Derek Chauvin, are we headed in the right direction, not only in terms of the conversation, but the solutions that are being discussed? You know, I'm, I'm glad you um, grounded me in the conversation we had three years ago because my thinking has definitely evolved since then. Mm. And, and um, I don't know that I would have equated it until now with, with the rethinking based on what happened after George Floyd's killing last year. But I think that that is the right pivotal point for me in some of my thinking. And so for me, I think that Um, You know, when you said earlier, I was thinking about drug courts, mental health courts. I don't want any of that right now. (laughs) I want to take the thinking back to where do we need to make investments about, well, take the whole conversation back to thinking about what does public safety look like? And and, and as the the deputy city manager in um, San Jose said when I was having conversations, he said, no, let's call it community safety, because then everyone understands who owns it, that the community owns it. It's not anyone's domain. It's all of our responsibility. So so I will say that the George Floyd situation caused me really to rethink and reorient um, for myself the conversation and I hope for everyone else. Because I think that we've gotten so polarized now about, and even that word policing and turning it into a verb. um, The question is, 
how do we have safe communities? How do we have communities where everybody has an opportunity to thrive and succeed? And then you start talking about, and what's the role of policing in that kind of world, as opposed to starting with thinking about police and then how do you create around them? And so for me, the, the whole paradigm of defund or abolish the police is the wrong conversation. The conversation is, from my perspective, is where do we make investments in people, in communities, in success? And that's education, jobs, creation, safe housing, quality safe housing, quality is critical, um, investing in, in, in food, um, all of these things that make communities um, thrive and people um, want to be there. And so for me, if you, if you invest in all of that on the front end, um, and then you deal with the health issues so that people um, um, have an opportunity to address whatever issues they might have or not have any issues, then you can say down the line, okay, when, when these other kinds of crises occur, what support systems do we need? And then think about who ought to be playing that role. And then you start thinking about at the end, well, what's the role for police? We will still always need police because as much as we try, there will still be some crime. But if you, if you have police doing that role and not um, being the only place to call for a mental health crisis, uh, being the only place to call when somebody's homeless and doesn't have a place to go, not calling them when um, is a, you know not having them be traffic enforcement folks, then we can focus on um, who else plays those other roles and let police do what they should be doing. So, do you think that the entire conversation on policing, on the role of police in communities, from your vantage point? Has the conversation shifted from where it was when we spoke three years ago or even a year ago before the killing of George Floyd? I think the conversation has shifted, um, thankfully. I know that, uh, well, you know that at John Jay, in partnership with the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, we hosted a series of conversations last fall with all these differing voices, uh, we called it a conversation across differences, um, to think about what does a safe community look like and how do we get there? And I've been so encouraged that people wanna have that conversation. So we found nine points of consensus in this report about the future of public safety, but what's really been um, gratifying and making me feel hopeful is everybody is calling their work reimagining public safety, reimagining policing. So people are embracing the thinking that we've got to do this differently. I'm working um, with the National League of Cities on a project they've got called reimagining public safety. And, um, and they're getting it. They're thinking about um, where they need to be making investments and how to support communities um, before they're in crisis. You know, um, here at the Washington Post, we did this huge series called Reimagining Public Safety with videos and op-eds and editorials. And you know, I learned a lot from that series, including the role of parks and how this is, this is my little diversion, my little wonky nerd diversion, but the idea that they took sort of abandoned lots turn them into public spaces, public um, areas, and crime went down 
in those specific in those specific areas. Very fascinating. I loved that first, and I, I should have led with that, but I love that piece in the Washington Post. And it it took me a good week to get through it because I kept going what I call down the rabbit holes because you'd read one piece <laughs> and then it would link to something else and link to something else. But that video and that that emergency room doctor, because again, seeing how everyone has a role to play in this conversation. Um, and it's not just about policing. That doctor realized the relationship between environment and behavior. And um, violent crime went down. Shootings went down in those communities where they gave people safe spaces to congregate, where they feel good about being outside and about themselves and being part of a community where they feel valued. And I think all of that is really important. So let's talk a a little bit further about the Chauvin trial, because for the first time in a, I guess in ever, that I watched a trial pretty much from beginning to end. And there are many things that were fascinating about this trial, including the fact that police officers testified against one of their own and most fascinating of all, the chief of police testified against um, one of his own. And then it was his term of his language he was using that I found really interesting. And that was he talked about um, he talked about the community, our community, when we're when I'm interacting with the community. And I don't think I've ever in a trial format, heard a a police officer, but certainly a chief of police who talked about the community that he has sworn to protect and serve as something that wasn't combat related, wasn't something where it was us against them. It was we, at least that's how I was reading it. Well, you read it right. And, and, and it's, you, you don't know this connection. So um, for me, the George Floyd situation was so traumatic because when I was the assistant attorney general at the Office of Justice Programs, we created the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice to make sure that a Michael Brown situation never happened. And we spent millions of dollars and years in six pilot sites and Minneapolis was one of our pilot sites. Mm -hmm. And the goal was to bring the concepts of procedural justice, implicit bias and racial reconciliation together and to see what impact we could make in communities in building these relationships. So every sworn and not sworn officer or person in the Minneapolis Police Department went through procedural justice training. They went through implicit bias training and we did racial reconciliation with the community. And it's wonderful to hear what you said about Chief Arredondo because he was our point person in Minneapolis. Wow. In that work. He led that work for us in Minneapolis. And so when he became chief, um, that that was encouraging, <clears throat> and I will say that I will say that because of that work, and and the beauty of that work is I funded it when I was at the Department of Justice. The grant coincidentally ended up at John Jay, and so I got to see this work from its inception, from our creation through the end of the work, and that's why it was traumatic for me to see what happened because I knew what the goal was, and to see what happened with George Floyd. But in the midst of all of this, I'm an eternal optimist, and there are some good things that have come out of this tragedy with George Floyd. One is that some of the work that we did in Minneapolis as part of the racial reconciliation work led by David Kennedy at John John Jay is he said, you gotta 
have something when you go meet with the community on racial reconciliation to show them you're giving them something. And so one of the things they did early on was change the policy that said, if you, you have a duty to intervene, and if you don't intervene, we can fire you. And that's why he was able to fire those officers. Ah. Intervene. And that was the result of that work on that national initiative work. And so for me, um, in the midst of this tragedy, there are some glimmers of hope that if you keep doing, and so what I'm doing now is actively raising money to figure out how do we improve on that work? Because one of the things I know that it was missing from that work is looking at it through a cultural lens and a race lens. And you can't, you've got to do that. And even though we did do some of that racial reconciliation work, you've got, I think my new working theory is that I've got to equip officers to understand the racial dynamics and the racial history of the communities in which they're operating and look at all of their work through that kind of lens. So that, that's my new hope. Uh, it's in a hypothesis we're going to test. How important is it that police officers live in the communities that they serve? Because I can't remember if it was, um, if it came up in the context of George Floyd or, sadly, in the case, I think it's in the case of the shooting of Dante Wright, where I think the family talked about the fact that the police officers, they don't even live here. They don't know us. Is that really, is it necessary for a police officer to live in the community that they serve? Well, I think it could go, I don't know that we have enough data on that. I think it's important for the police officers to understand their communities and feel part of the community, whether they're from there. But you have to think about that one of those officers was from Minneapolis and he joined the police department because of what he saw in terms of the fractured relationships between communities of color and law enforcement, King. And, and that's why he went into policing. And this still happened. He was still part of this tragedy. So that, that tells me there's something else going on um, that we, 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 we've got to think about. Um, but I think that one of the, some of the programs that I've seen that have been very, very successful um, in San Francisco, they used to have a requirement that all of their recruits um, worked at the Boys Willie Mays Boys and Girls Club every day, every afternoon as part of their training. And what that did was it gave the police chief a chance to see how they interacted with inner city kids and developed a relationship. It was a win-win because the kids understood law enforcement better and had relationships. And there was a chief, um, chief Beerman who used to run the police foundation when he was ch um, chief in Redwood. He always did interviews and made sure he looked at his recruits in the context of seeing how they interacted with young people, because he said that tells you a lot about whether they're the kind of officer you want, how they relate to these young folks. So these are, again, working theories, working hypotheses about how do you, how do you equip officers and identify the officers who will be good partners with the communities. All right, let's, let's get into it. The reason why I wanted to talk to you um, is because of something you said when I interviewed, when you came on my MSNBC show, the Sunday show, and at the very end, we were running out of time, and you said, and I'm paraphrasing, that we have got to deal with an issue that we're not talking about, and that is the fear of black people. And that came to mind again as you were talking about that officer who joined the police force because 
you know, he wanted to be a part of race reconciliation and you know be a part of a better bridge and yet he still was involved in something like this let's talk about the fear of black people because i don't think um a lot of people and by a lot of people i mean white people realize how much that fear um impacts us because we know it we have to live with it but also impacts them and what they do and how they think whenever we're around and I just want to go back and say one thing about that officer I was talking about. He's at least biracial. I don't know which parent is what, but he's of color mm -hmm. right. somewhere in his, his lineage. And I think he identifies that way. And so for that, you know, there are all these dynamics that are happening. So one of the things that, that you know, in the um, in the in all the conversations around the Chauvin, I hate calling his name, around the murder of George Floyd's trial, um, one of the parts of the conversation the commentators were talking about was that police expect this to control an environment and it's they've got this that they've got to control and if you don't respond the way they want you to when they're trying to control that's when some of these other things happen and so for me it's tied up with also are they afraid of us and I remember being on a, a panel with um, Brian Stevenson. It was a faith and prejudice series that, that they did. And, um, and he said, you know, all these young people have done is to grow up. And they grow up into their bodies. And then people are all of a sudden afraid of them just because they've grown up. And, and, I, and that was, you know, uh, I loved his articulation of that because it, it is what happens. You know, I look at my nephews when they were cute and young and everybody wanted to play with them and they get older and people are afraid of them and they didn't do anything except grow up. And I think we've got to have conversations around that and, and, and ask and have make people talk about it and think about it and say, why is it when you're in this situation, your adrenaline gets racing more depending on what, what the other person looks like. And, and that's a reality that, that we've got to face. And I will, you know, and, and, and I just think we need to put it on the table and to begin having conversations about it. And from my perspective as, as, as the president of a college that's training future law enforcement officers, most of whom are black and brown, but it's an issue. I don't think the issue is, is race related. I, I, my, one of my nephews was stopped on a police stop, um, traffic stop because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And I have, we, it was Christmas day. We were coming home from Christmas at my mother's nursing home and then going to my house for dinner. And I saw them pull him over. He was in a new car, a Ford, nothing fancy. And I said, I'm going to go see what's going on. But, and I was the assistant attorney general at the time and a lawyer, but I didn't identify myself as either because I thought that might complicate his life. So I just went over to the officer and he said, I said, I'm his aunt. And I'm, um, what's going on? He said, well, he didn't have a seatbelt on, Auntie, and he should know better. And I said, yes, he should. And he ran his plates, and I realized that he wasn't going to come back until I left. And it was a black officer mm. and, in Cobb County, Georgia. And I made a decision that I was going to trust this officer because he was black. And I went home. My brother said, that was a mistake. You should have stayed. Over an hour later, he's cussing and fussing because they called SWAT dogs. They brought other cars. They had like four other cars and SWAT dogs swarming his car. And I'm like, for what? A seatbelt? And all I could do was sit there and say, please tell me you stayed calm. That's all I could think of.
because I thought all I, I was so scared for him, even though he's standing in front of me, I still was frightened for him because of that reaction over a seatbelt. And I just, I don't, I, I think that, that um, we've got this mythology around particularly black men that we've got to change. And I think that, you know, that was to me, the brilliance of president Obama's my brother's a keeper initiative was to change the narrative of how we see young men and boys of color and see their promise and see their potential and see their talent and not see these other things and support their success. So for me, the conversation, if we're gonna support their success, we've also got to have that real difficult conversation with people about why are you scared of them? Mm-hmm. And, and the key thing about that story is the fact that it was a black police officer. I think people um, will look at situations and say, well, how could race be a part of this? The police officer was black. And it sort of denies the fact that this fear of black people is so ingrained in our history as a country that it washes over all of us. Um, and especially when you're in, in law enforcement, sure, it's a complicating factor, but still, it's something that is, is still at play. And you know, I don't think that's why I was so glad you said that on the show, because in the end, that's what it is, the fear of black people. So how do we have that conversation in ways that are constructive right. um, and doesn't automatically put people on the defensive? And I think that's part of, again, what I'm envisioning as a this this curriculum that I want to design with looking at things through a race lens is so that we create a context for having the conversation. And, and it's difficult, but saying we got to have it because pretending that we don't have these thoughts isn't going to make the problem go away. And if we're committed to change, which I hope that we are, I hope that, 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 you know, people use the term inflection point, pivotal point, whatever. I want to make sure that, that, that we have some real substantive long-term change. And the only way to do that is by talking and having conversations. And I think that our series of conversations around the future of public safety showed that you can put people together with differing views on things and have productive conversations. If what, if you keep make people focus on the fact that we're not just talking about the problem, we're talking about how are we going to move forward and get people thinking and focused on the, we want to move forward past this. So let's talk about it and think about how do we address it? How do we do it? You mentioned on this show yesterday that you don't, well, I wasn't sure with you or the other, but that we can't train people out of, of, of racial biases, but we can make people aware of them and think about them. I went through some training before I did some interviewing about how to recognize my biases and they gave me some tools around it and I used them and it really did impact how I conducted the interviews as a result of having that awareness about bias as I approach the conversations. It takes work, constant work, constant reinforcement. And I think this is the issue that people have got to realize is this is long, hard work. People will still make mistakes, but you got to stay in it and stay at the table and stay in the conversation and realize that it's long, hard work and not just walk away because it's difficult. Right. right. And, 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 and that's, that's exactly, exactly in, in, in a, a different, different way, way 
is what I what I said in my byline, which is, you know, if you want to be an ally, this, this is not a hobby. This this is something that requires ongoing work. Once you start the work, it doesn't end. And I think that's the thing that people need to sort of embrace. Um, knowing that once you go down this road, you can't stop. Right. Um, and also, you know, getting, you know, implicit bias training or learning and understanding where your biases might be is terrific. But you got to know, to your point, you got to see it and recognize it is part of the victory. And recognizing it and then putting that knowledge into action, or in, in this case, not putting it into action, but being mindful of it is is like the one exercise that this nation needs to needs to undergo. Um, so here's my last question for you, and that is, if I were a genie, <laughs> you like doing that. And oh, did I do that the last time? You did that the first time I was on your show. <laughs> okay, well, good because you know you said your your mind has changed from some of the stuff you told me three years ago. So the genie's back. And what's the one thing you would ask um, to be done in order to change the dynamic or in the last thing we were talking about to change this fear of black people? There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. The one thing I would do is... is um say, Jeannie, give everybody the courage to have the difficult conversations and the courage to talk about what they really think and feel so that we can get it all out on the table and to begin working on it, really working on it. And, and I'm going to take my Jeannie um, one wish further down, the, further down the road and that this courage would produce... Um, a willingness to really commit to this work long-term so that we're not revisiting this again in another 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That we have got to not, we got to have the courage and, 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 and not feel personally attacked because we use the words racist. Um, and that we begin to really look beneath and look at ourselves closely, all of us, and say, I wanna do this hard work to make this world a better place for all of us. Because we all succeed when everybody has an opportunity to succeed. We've got so much talent. And I, and I know you, I, I, I always think about how much we as a, as a people have accomplished in spite of every single one of the obstacles that have been put in front of us. And can you think about what's possible if we didn't have to jump, out, drop, jump over all those hurdles mm -hmm. and we were all working together and supporting each other? We'd be in such a good place as a country. Carol Mason, president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.